federal auditors are still uncovering the full scope of fraud and $5 trillion of COVID-19-related spending. Agency inspectors general already flagged tens of billions of dollars in suspected fraud. Part of the problem, agencies weren't keeping improper payments in check before the pandemic hit. Well, now they're asking for better tools to do so. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman covered the hearing, and he joins me with an update. Jory, just how much fraud so far as the meter's running even as we speak? Right. Yeah, this is a moving target and something that we won't fully uncover for some time still. But we did get a check in from the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee Chairman Michael Horowitz, who is also the Inspector General for the Justice Department. Here's what he told the committee last week. It's clearly in the tens of billions of dollars. It wouldn't surprise me if it exceeds ultimately more than $100 billion. But we have so much work to do. Yes, that's true. And that's just one piece of the puzzle. We also heard from the U.S. Comptroller General, Gene Dodaro. He told lawmakers that of the economic impact payments that went out to individuals, those checks that went out in the mail directly uh, supporting people who needed that funding, about $1.4 billion of that spending went to deceased individuals. And Gene Dodaro should know because his own mother had gotten one of these and she had passed uh, by the time she received that check. And that's something that uh, both he and his sister rectified. They sent the check back. And so uh, this is something that he's well aware of. As I think an issue. I'm surprised he didn't frame it, you know, just to put it up in his office and see here's what can happen. So how many investigations are going on right now? Just to give you a sense of the scope of this here, more than a thousand individuals to date have pled guilty in one way or another on pandemic fraud related charges. Another 600 charges are pending in courts across the country. And the Small Business Administration's Inspector General has more than 500 active investigations ongoing. And the Labor Department is opening about 100 new cases every week. Wow, it sounds like the Keystone Cops here. And what programs account for most of the fraud at the hearing? What came out? The programs that are leading to the most uh, fraud, waste and abuse here are the programs you've probably heard the most about. That includes SBA's Paycheck Protection Program, its Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, or EIDL, as well as the Unemployment Insurance Program that is overseen by the federal government but implemented by the states. And so Horowitz said that all of those programs are highly susceptible to fraud. The problem there was the desire to simply get the money out as quickly as possible without taking not an unreasonable amount of time, but an appropriate amount of time to make sure that they were sending the money to the right people. That was the problem, among others, with those two programs. Right. The agencies were told, speed, 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 get the money out. I mean, that was congressional orders, pretty much, and both administrations that oversaw this type of spending said to get it out quickly. So how did agencies balance the speed of payment over checking for fraud? Were there any checks in place? Well, that is part of the concern from these pandemic watchdogs that we heard from. Speed, of course, was that overriding priority. The the money just needed to get out as quickly as possible in 2020, especially But Horowitz said that there were just some basic things that weren't being done here. Case in point, SBA had issued 57,000 loans worth $3.6 billion to entities that were already on the Treasury Department's do not pay list. And this didn't really require any further checks on their part. But the way that Horowitz says they just didn't bother to check that list. We've heard over and over again at the time Well, we needed to get the money out right away. There was an emergency. No dispute about that. We needed to get the money out right away. There was an emergency. You need to be ready for that. This list was sitting there. This was not 
anything that would have taken much time. There needs to be preparation. Yeah, somebody didn't open the file folder with that list in it before they started sending money out. So now these watchdogs appeared before Congress, as you've reported. And what are they asking for now? Well, one of the things they're asking for is that Congress doesn't make the same mistake that they made. One of the things that the PRAC, the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, is asking Congress for now is that they don't make the same mistake that they made back in 2008 in the aftermath there of the Great Recession. This predecessor board, the Recovery, Accountability, and Transparency Board, had this really great, robust set of data and analytics tools. It's Recovery Operations Center. But that went away when that board went away in 2015. And so what the PRAC is asking for here is that its own data and analytics platform, the Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence, finds a home beyond its statutory sunset date. And there are a couple of takers, the Government-wide counsel, SIGI, would be one likely candidate there. But that's something that Congress would need to intervene in and and find a statutory language, some vehicle to pass that would make that the case here. And we did hear from Comptroller General Gene Dodaro saying that this would be a really good idea. And if you had this permanent capability, it would not only deal with regular fraud, but it would be ready and there when emergencies occur and you won't have waste time standing up. Every day wasted is another day susceptible to fraud and improper payments. And of course, fraud has been a problem with federal programs way before the pandemic, way before the recession of 2008. And so did these come up, the fact that there's just this ongoing problem with these massive programs for decades? It definitely came up. And this type of issue of it doesn't get a lot of attention, the idea of fraud, waste, and abuse until these big, high-profile things bubble up to the surface. And there were just some things that were supposed to be done that just weren't being done. Case in point, Congress had passed the Fraud Reduction and Data Analytics Act in 2016. It would have required agencies to implement GAO's fraud risk risk framework. It would have required OMB to stand up a working group on this issue. And from GAO's telling, these things just weren't done. They weren't a priority, and OMB never really convened that working group. One other issue here is just with the PRAC doing the best it could. It stood up 30 days out from the CARES Act being passed, its own pandemic website where you could track the spending. But on the back end of that, the watchdogs just weren't getting good, timely data from the agencies. Horowitz says that it was going back and forth with the SBA in early stages of 2020 and just not getting that data until, you know, the soonest was really October of 2020. Right. To paraphrase Mark Twain, fraud gets halfway around the world before oversight gets its boots on, you might say. And by the way, Jory, you were watching this hearing. What was the reaction of Congress that appropriated all these trillions in the first place? You know, it really does get back to that tricky balance between speed and urgency of getting this money out the door versus, you know, this time and place now where it's a little more appropriate to look at the fraud side of things. You know, obviously, every dollar that goes out to fraudsters is a dollar that doesn't get to the people who these programs were built up for in the first place. And so there was definitely some bipartisan concern there. All right. Well, I have a suggestion for them. They should rename that PACE, the Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence, to the Ed PACE, the Earl Devaney Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence, to honor the watchdog over the pandem- over the recovery funds back in the late 2000s, the late Earl Devaney, probably spinning in his grave. But 
no resolution, just uh, Congress hearing at this point, no legislation pending that we know of. Well, you know, we did hear from some members of the committee say that they would introduce legislation to some effect to, uh, you know, implement the recommendations that were brought up before the committee. Uh, And we did hear from committee chairman James Comer say that this is just the first of a series of hearings that we'll hear on this issue. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. A bill before the House would create a new cadre of people to help the government in case of a serious cyber attack. The National Digital Reserve Corps would be managed by the General Services Administration. For the details of how this would work, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Texas representative and a sponsor of the bill, Tony Gonzalez, who started with his own chops. First off, I am a retired Navy Master Chief. I spent 20 years in in the Navy as a naval cryptologist with a top-secret SCI clearance, spent five years in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so, to me, uh, information warfare uh, technology, uh, the digital space is, is something that I consider my expertise. And when I came to Congress, this is something I very much uh, is important to me. Now, my district, District 23 in Texas, it stretches from San Antonio to El Paso. It's over 800 miles of the southern border. Places like Uvalde, Del Rio, Eagle Pass, El Paso are in the district. So a lot of my attention uh, gets put on the border. But to me, this this digital reserve core is a is an important piece of legislation that gets ahead of a problem. And I'll give you an example. Last year in Texas, there was this huge winter storm that came through and everybody's power and water uh, was knocked out for about a week or so. Didn't matter the color of your skin. Didn't matter how much money you had in your bank account. If you lived in a city, big city or a small little town, everybody was without power. So I envision uh, that the next storm that comes through uh, won't be a winter storm. It'll be a cyber storm. And when that hits, how do we, you know, who turns the power back on? This uh, this piece of legislation gets to answering who, uh, who and how and, and gets us ahead of it. Gotcha. And so what kind of activities would you, well, you know, you mentioned the cyber storm. Uh, I imagine, you know, cyber attacks, of course, is on there. But what other sorts of uh, preventative measures do you think this Digital Reserve Corps could help with? Maybe not even preventative, just having a plan of action in place if something does occur. Yeah, in the digital space, you're seeing intrusions happen every single minute of every single day. And it's no longer, it used to be a time where, Cyber was predominantly in the national security and defense space, and now it's in everything, absolutely every aspect of life. It's in education and healthcare and 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 every every bit. I often say companies are IT companies first, and then they do other stuff. Then they you know sell oil or they make widgets or they teach or or whatever it may be. And we're seeing it's not a matter of, of, of if it happens. It's a matter of when something major happens. You've seen it with the colonial pipeline. Uh, you've seen it with these intrusions on schools and healthcare providers. 
and water infrastructure. So it's happening every single day. The key to me is what are we going to do about it when a major intrusion happens? And while so in particular, this bill federalizes IT professionals for a, a short period, let's say 60 days. What does that mean? Okay. So I live in San Antonio. Let's say the city of San Antonio gets wiped out. Nobody has power or water because of a cyber uh, attack. Well, who turns that back on? And part of it is every one of these major companies, even small companies, has an IT infrastructure. What this bill does, it allows these people to serve in a, these IT professionals to serve in a federal capacity for a limited amount of time. So let's say, you know, you, you love your country, you want to help turn the lights back on, but you don't want to join the Marines, right? Well, this is an avenue where you can help your country get the lights back on uh, when uh, when a major intrusion happens. As someone, as you mentioned, who had a top secret security clearance, you know, looking at this from a policy standpoint, that seems like one of the major hurdles is going to be able to keep a reserve corps that is able to maintain that security clearance. And even when they're not on duty, what do you foresee as a, a mechanism for uh, improving that process to, to enable this? Yeah, one of the benefits is, is 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 I'm a firm believer in creating an ecosystem that that allows for you to tackle some of these problems. And to me, that ecosystem is government, it's industry, and it's academia. When you get those three those three areas in a room, good things happen. So in this case, industry would be the ones that would have the professionals would be would have the workforce. And I vision I envision government as the one. The, the the avenue that could one help with security clearances so that's an avenue that i think would make it enticing for people to be part of the digicore uh help with security clearances the other is help with continuous training and so you know i and once again i spent a lot of time in the military i retired from the military you train the way you fight you fight the way you train we can have this major cyber intrusion happen and then let that be the time in which we react we got to get ahead of it so it just starts to get just start getting us down a path of collaboration and thinking of how we're going to react when something like this occurs. This has been an idea that's been around before. Former Texas Representative Will Hurd, who I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, brought on a similar idea years ago and kept on trying to push it before he left Congress. Uh, what's different this time around that you think there'll be more momentum? And, you know, I was really excited last year. Oh, I mean, it's very bipartisan. Uh, you know, I've, I've uh, focused on, you know, real tangible solutions. Uh, politics right now is very is very divided and contentious. Uh, but cyber and getting ahead of a, a cyber intrusion is something I think that brings us together. So last year uh, we introduced this and it actually got passed in the House. There were over 800 amendments to the uh, the NDA, the National Defense Authorization Act. This, this piece of legislation, the National Digital Reserve Corps, had the second most amount of co-sponsors. So it's, a, you know, it, it's not as if there's just one or two members you know, that, that have, have signed on. I mean, it, it's been dozens, and so it was incredible. Now, it went over to the Senate, and it kind of died, and, and the White House had some issues with kind of who was going to control the program. But I, I'm very optimistic this year that we can work through all that, and we can ultimately get it uh, over the finish line and signed into law. I'll just say one last thing is last year there were around 100 pieces of legislation from the House that got signed into law out of 10,000, you know, and one of those pieces of legislation was mine. I'm very proud of that. So uh, the way I look at it, if I can pass a piece of legislation in the minority, uh, I, I feel good about passing uh, legislation in the majority. 
And yeah, just finishing up here, can you just tell me about the landscape of why something like this would be important? What do you foresee as the future in digital warfare as an expert in that area? Yeah, we're already there. I mean, the the, the future is now, and and any I mean, we're getting we're getting tidbits of it uh, throughout the country. It's not just one part. And, and I'll go back to the Colonial Pipeline just because that that seems to be uh, fairly fairly new or, or fairly recent, and and it impacted a lot of lives. You know, if you have one piece of uh, of infrastructure that gets that gets shut down, it all comes down. And once again, if you lived in Texas. If you lived in Texas, you will never forget the winter storm last year. I mean, everybody will remember that. So I think this is something that, like I said, we're not uh, – this is a problem that's already here. What are we going to do about it when it when it gets larger? So um, uh, I'm excited about continuing to work, uh, you know, with my colleagues here in the House, continuing to work with my colleagues in the Senate to get it through the finish line, and then ultimately with the White House so we can get this signed into law. But very excited about the National Digital Reserve Corps and, and look forward to continuing to include industry in it as well. You know, in, industry needs to have a seat at the table and academia as well. I'll just say, like, I'm a cryptologist, and uh, there's, there are there is one cryptologist in Congress. So a lot of people want to have uh, cyber bills. Uh, sometimes you can cause more harm than good with a bill. We've really tried to think this through to, to make it a win-win for everybody. Texas Republican Tony Gonzalez is a member of the House Appropriations Committee. We'll post this interview along with a link to the bill at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. For the military, nothing much happens without good requirements. My next guest is the Air Warfare Requirements Coordinator for the Navy. His work earned him a Defense Acquisition Workforce Award. This is the first of a series of interviews this week, all Defense Department civilians from this latest round. And now the Navy's Vic Steinman joins me. Mr. Steinman, good to have you on. Uh, Good morning, sir. Well, let's begin with what you do. What is an Air Warfare Requirements Coordinator, and what does the work entail? In the OPNAV staff, which is largely responsible in the Title X authorities, as you know, for organize, train, equip, uh, we have responsibilities both fiduciary and we invest a lot of human capital in the management of resources and allocation and the planning and programming and budgeting cycle. And we have an equivalent responsibility that is the part that I play that represents the requirement, and I tend to say the valid progression of deliberate requirements to support whatever we have the responsibility to resource. Because the Navy, you know, has planes and it has ships and so forth, and Mm -hmm. you're concerned with what flies because it's air warfare requirements. Is this something that is done annually, the rolling up of these requirements, or how does it get to the point where the requirements are established? It's actually a daily job, and it has several degrees of kind of depth or outlook. In terms of just programs in air warfare, pretty much from air-to-ground weapons, air-to-air weapons, 
flying platforms, both fixed wing and rotary wing, up to and including aircraft carriers. It spans mainly the programs that we have isolated uh, to the directorate up in air warfare. And my daily job or kind of responsibilities here are to assist as part of a matrixed workforce to support all requirements officers and their branches across those platforms. Is this then episodically based? In other words, if there is a training exercise coming up or if there is a ship and a carrier, say, that is to deploy, then the elements involved with carrying that out would need to know what their requirements are in terms of fuel and people and other equipment and maintenance supplies and so on. And that somehow comes all through you, then gets translated into something that's meaningful for acquisition. That role and responsibilities are generally begin with our type command, So our Commander Naval Air Forces has responsible for the day-to-day operations and up to including most of those things that would be inside the POM. At the service staff here, the requirements that we look at are the enhancement, improvement, or modification of current programs that need to stay relevant across the spectrum and what investments we would make with our acquisition partners uh, smartly to keep those things pacing threats. And also, um, really the development of any new requirements. So as new or platforms are replaced or software hardware solutions are invoked at whatever scale, they're written in what we term as a deliberate fashion. Uh, You may have heard of the JSIDS system, the Joint Capability Integration Development System, which is really a rubric that lays out kind of a methodical stepwise process to capture, convey, and validate requirements that are then met with the appropriate resources over the uh, introduction, fielding, and operations of any platform. So, for example, if a new type of weapon update was introduced to put on the bottom of an airplane wing, for example, I'm just making this up, that could translate into lots of details that have to be thought of by your group, such as how it disengages the bolts, all of the little electromechanical parts that turn that into a reality so that it's actually operational. Those are all requirements, right? A hundred percent. That's exactly right, Tom. And, and actually where we capture as the sponsor in the validated requirements document, they're at a level that's just a fidelity, that's just a bit higher than where you're at. That serves as a great umbrella document that really in a broad way determines what the item will do, about when or how we would feel it and a time, and then what are the total life cycle costs? Those documents become the statutory introduction to the acquisition community, and then a good program manager takes that and they derive little r's, we call them, or many, many multitudes of smaller requirements that meet the larger requirement and ultimately go out as contract specification and deliverables from our valued partners in industry. We're speaking with Vic Steinman. He's Air Warfare Requirements Coordinator for the Navy. And uh, by the way, I congratulate anyone who can keep their equilibrium living within the POM cycle, because that's something beyond most people's ability to be patient through. But how did you get this award, a specific project 
that you did that caught the attention of the uppers? I'm a little lost to answer that question. I have had a long career in active duty and government employment, and this one took me a little bit by surprise. We do have lots of current initiatives that are going. I could dabble on that a little bit, but I have to take just a moment to give a shout out to the individual that I learned from, James Mongo Rowley. It took me about two years in the saddle here of the last 10 to really gain a kind of an insight in how to look at requirements and the value of words. But I I would suggest that there's just so much that crosses the plate, and it's really a treat for me, believe it, it's not work, to come in and take and to be a support asset for new requirements officers because our active duty uh, folks, they come and go through here on 24, 36-month cycles. And uh, it's just a really great partnering we have up there. And to be of some uh, help or assistance with them, because a lot of this stuff is very new to them as they enter the building, it's, it's really been a real pleasure. Well, maybe give us an example of a new program or a new system that resulted in these, as you put it, high-fidelity requirements. Maybe walk us through a recent project so we can get some idea of what you do do. I can topically maybe list several things that are in play that have recently uh, been uh, uh, met some modicum of success. Right now, we're just kind of in the throes of finishing and getting out for review a requirements document for a hypersonic air-launched weapon. We also have in play, that's a deliberate acquisition and a deliberate requirement generation. We're working in other vehicles like a software initial capabilities document for a new planning system in kind of a planning continuum. We used to plan missions and get them uploaded into aircraft and network them. Uh, Now we're looking more at the planning and the conduct of the mission and the debrief in a new architecture. Also, another software ICD where we're looking at capturing the requirements that might develop largely the software, uh, an effort we call autonomy that might move us into a kind of a crawl, walk, run in our manned, unmanned, or crude and uncrewed teaming to reap the benefits of that, so a software development effort. A lot of the things we do, I've assisted in, 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 in and in fact, new development. Um, we try to, I try to look for things that are available as answers without jumping to new development. And, then, and oftentimes, we look for answers that might be available without an extraordinarily expensive and lengthy development period. One that was has proved to be of great success was repurposing V-22 aircraft, which the Marine Corps had had great success with, and which the Navy, we in 98, did a document to embrace that airplane as a replacement for the carrier onboard delivery aircraft. And it's, it's working, and it's working well. We've done that with training aircraft as well. H-57 uh, helicopter was sure. just an incredibly duty airplane. And we, we, we've replaced it with a commercially derived airplane without developmental costs. So does that mean that the long-sought dream of everyone who's ever been on a carry-on-board aircraft will have a window to look out of? <laughs> I'm going to stop short of that, sir. Um, and I'll, but I'd have to validate that one. That's a great question. I'm not, I'm not going to commit. 
Well, that's the requirement I would put in, but I don't have any authority <laughs> over these things. But it sounds like you really derive great satisfaction from the work you do. I really do. Um, it might be, I hope it's not strange to say, but it is incredibly rewarding to come back and be with a lot of the, 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 the people here that, uh, you know, not. it seems like not that many years ago I was in that position. And it is wonderful to, in some small way, impart a little bit of assistance. And knowing full well I'd walked that ground before and... Uh, so in that part, yeah, it is very satisfying. Yeah, so having been on active duty, as you indicate, if I'm correct, then you kind of know what it's like to live with the things that come out of requirements, and now you get a chance to influence them at the front end. That's a fact, and I, I just have to be very clear, though. I, I'm i the first one to say that my opinion, while maybe interesting me, should not matter, and I... <laughs> I really Understood. try to use the the prudent uh, analysis and, and seek that. But you're exactly right. It is nice to participate in that. Vic Steinman is Air Warfare Requirements Coordinator for the Navy and a recipient of a 2022 Defense Acquisition Workforce Award. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, sir, and thanks for the opportunity. And we'll post this interview along with a list of all of the winners at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the podcast version of the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Congress will be particularly partisan this week. It's the week of the State of the Union speech, with a governor and former Trump administration press spokeswoman giving the response to President Biden. Fun. For more of what's going on, Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And I guess the State of the Union is a good time for each of the parties to lay out their agendas or relay them out. So it does have a clarifying effect on where the battles will be, doesn't it? It definitely does. And, you know, once a year they gather in a chamber and hear from the president. Um, it's going to be a different reception for him than the last two that he's given, where he was with a Democratic Congress with Nancy Pelosi over one of his shoulders. This time it'll be Kevin McCarthy with whom he had, which seemed to be a cordial meeting last week. But, um, you know, it's it's a new reality that he faces, a set of proposals that aren't going to be welcomed by the party in control of the House, um, but definitely kind of the kickoff for the year ahead, including budget battles, which are going to be one of the key things going into the, the debates that will happen for the next several months. Right, because the budget battle now has become intertwined with the fact of the debt ceiling, which has not been resolved. And so they're really hard to separate those two issues. I think the Democrats would like to separate them but the Republicans are seeing that as a point of leverage. Right. These are three separate questions that Congress faces on different timelines. One is annual funding, which, you know, the appropriations process is all about, and the budget that's sent up sometime in March will lay out the administration's visions there. But then there's the debt limit, which is really about paying the bills that you've already incurred with everything you've passed into law. And then there's mandatory spending programs, many of which operate on autopilot, and they don't look at that often, or maybe 
here or there. They take a look at the way some of these programs work. All these are going to be intertwined. And do you agree to a debt limit increase only if there's changes to mandatory spending, only if there's caps on discretionary spending? All those things are kind of a, a soup right now that they're dealing with all at once, even if some of the bigger decisions may not be made till later in the year on things like what to fund the Pentagon at starting October 1st or something like that. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a long-term debate that'll pause for a couple of hours and then continue again, or that will be the catalyst for continuation. What else is going on, though? There is a bill on vaccine requirements for foreign visitors. That's right. So the House has been taking aim at some of the policies put in place during the pandemic. Um, Last week, as you know, they voted to end the public health emergency and the national emergency and try to end pandemic telework rules. But this week, the one that they're bringing up is to end the requirement that people coming in from abroad have a vaccine. Um, So this is one of the policies that was put into place, one of the, you know, lingering aspects of the pandemic policies. And that's one that the House is looking to get rid of. Um, It's not clear that any of these things that have been passed in the House are going to be taken up by the Senate. um, But it's a way for the House to continue to chip away at what they see as the return to normal that they want to see the Biden administration agree with and change policies about. Right. That bill to return telework to pre-pandemic levels that was put forth by Representative Comer, that's probably not going to go anywhere because, I mean, it passed the House, correct? But the Senate won't take up a thing like that so far as we can tell. So far as we can tell, that won't come up. I mean, you could see if they got a bill on the floor and had an open amendment process, maybe they'll take a vote on something like that. The one that at least one senator, um, Roger Marshall, who's been successful in the past to getting the Senate to vote on ending the national emergency, he may try to use the the rules that exist in law and in the Senate books to force a vote on that at some point. Um, As we know, the Biden administration said that emergency is going to come to an end on May 11th under their new schedule. Um, So it might be a point whether or not they vote on that. Uh, but that's the one where there are some procedural tools that give the minority in this chan- in this case a chance to potentially force a vote if everything lines up correctly. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And there is at least one judicial pick in the work, and I think Senator Cotton has threatened to hold up all judicial nominations. Right. So this is one of the things that the Senate is looking at doing this year. And the Senate Judiciary Committee last week churned out a number of nominees that were sent up last year, didn't get through the finish line and have started over again. Um, but the the thing about nominations is it only takes a simple majority to push those through. There's no 60 vote requirement. So even if a senator says he's going to hold it up, um, the my, the majority, if they stay united, can push those through and over the line as long as they have you know 50 votes and maybe the vice president to come and break a tie. So um, it may slow things down. They may not get agreements to expedite things. But this is a top priority for the Biden administration and for Majority Leader Schumer and Majority Whip Durbin, who, by the way, is also the judiciary chairman. So um, he has a lot of sway when it comes to that. Sure. And getting back to the House, they are looking at two D.C. laws that have become from the city council have become the law of the city recently. One is on voting to let anyone who's been in the city for 30 days, regardless of where they came from, including, you know, the Kremlin or something, could vote in D.C. elections. And the other was the overhauling of the criminal code, not sitting well with Republicans on the Hill either. No, it's not. And this is one of the the things when Congress set up a government in D.C. under the D.C. Home Rule Act, they gave themselves the authority to overrule D.C. laws. Um, that's often not invoked, but this is a case where House 
House Republicans are going to use that law that's on the books to try to challenge these two laws. And um, I, I expect we'll hear a lot in particular about the crime one, um, just given some of the statistics around D.C. and some of the interest there. Um, but it's again, these are some things that may be difficult to bring up in the Senate and um, the Biden administration may not want to overrule the D.C. government. Um, you know, but this is one of the one of the facts of life in Washington, D.C. and the way it's set up and the way that the laws setting up self-government for D.C. do give Congress the opportunity, if they wish, to overturn this um, by passing a joint resolution. So uh, kind of an unusual thing. We haven't seen it for a while, but um, something that will dominate some floor debate. It seems like the House is having vote after vote on different laws that different bills that probably won't become laws because it's the opposite of what the Senate wants to do. The Senate doesn't seem to be generating much in the way of new legislation at the moment, and it's going to be confined, it sounds like, to what it can do, and that is pass on judicial nominations. If I got it right, anything else happening up there? That's been sort of the pace so far. The House has had a lot of votes on a lot of bills that, to you know, as we've said here, are unlikely to get through the Senate. The Senate really hasn't had many votes at all. They just set up their committees on Thursday of last week, so they can start this week to get those up and running and start generating some bills and some more nominees out of there. But there are some tentpole bills that we'll see action on, the FAA reauthorization, the Farm Bill. There's already some start, you know, some talks and hearings around both of those issues. So there will be some legislation there. The appropriations process, some version of it will happen. But this early period, at least, it's a lot of messaging bills, things that were ready to go is what the House Republicans called them initially, although even some of those they ended up not bringing up in the end. So I, I think this is a prelude to what we'll see the rest of the year. But there, there are some things that have to get done. And when they get closer to those, I think we'll see more substantive um, action on those things. Yeah, there was a little bit of moonlight and roses breaking through, as you said, in that meeting between House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden, and they were not saying they'll agree, but they were saying they wouldn't tear each other's throats out. I guess that's what constitutes progress in today's Washington. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's the first meeting of many, and uh, he, he speaks for his conference. But as we saw, the conference may not always go along and may have some other ideas, too. So, But a, a good first meeting is a good first step. Well, let's hope they can agree on Bush, Mills, or Jamison's. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Defense Department civilians working in Japan say they're in the midst of a full-blown health care crisis. Employees say sudden changes in appointment availability at military treatment facilities have meant that for all intents and purposes, they've lost access to medical care. They can still go to military emergency rooms, but that's about it. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has details on what's changed and how it's impacting the thousands of DOD employees in Japan. Susan, a primary care psychologist at Marine Corps Air Station Iwakuni, moved to Japan four years ago because she and her husband wanted to see the world. They also thought a safe country with world-class infrastructure seemed like an ideal place to raise their first child. Now, though, getting out of the country is a matter of urgency for her family because of what she and other countless other American civilian employees in Japan say has been a dire and sudden change in their ability to access even the most basic health care services. Susan isn't actually her real name. She agreed to talk with us only under a pseudonym because she's afraid that doing so publicly will jeopardize her chances of finding a new job where she can get proper medical care for that child who eventually came. She's now 10 months old. My husband and I decided to go through IVF and bring a child into the world here because we thought that we could 
take care of her and meet her needs. And that included being able to give her basic access to healthcare. Now I'm kind of felt living with this almost this guilt. I feel guilt that we're raising her in a situation where she's not getting all the medical coverage she needs. There are about 6,000 DoD civilians in Japan, and they've seen drastic changes in healthcare access over the past several months. They're dramatic, but they vary somewhat from installation to installation, and the underlying causes are also multifaceted. Because of that, they're also difficult to completely resolve overnight. Defense health officials are quick to point out that there's been no official change in policy. On paper, DoD civilians have always been treated on a space-available or space-A basis at military treatment facilities, and active-duty service members and their families have had the first priority. What seems to have changed the most is the department's definition of what space-available actually means. Silene Mullen, the acting assistant secretary of defense for health affairs, says the changes civilians are now seeing started several months ago when the defense health agency determined the facilities weren't offering enough appointment availability for those active duty patients. By law, those patients are the first priority. We've been under, you know, a lot of um, pressure and scrutiny to make sure that those access standards are met. And what was happening across the defense health agency was that they were looking and over here, the standards started slipping. The active duty members and their active duty family members couldn't get in the MTFs for their care. So what happened was in all good intentions was to say, okay, we need to reiterate a policy that's been around for since you know, 2011, which meant that unintentionally squeezed out space A spots. So what happened as we saw more active duty and active duty family members, fewer space A came out there. One, we could have probably communicated that better, but that that really didn't happen, or perhaps talk more to the people on the ground. Duty civilians living in Japan say access to health care there has always been a bit challenging, but the most recent changes have been dramatic. They happen gradually and then all at once. First, in September, some employees started hearing from their regular providers at local MTFs that they'd no longer be able to see them. Then, just before Christmas, DHA issued an updated instruction that explicitly told local MTF commanders that they should only treat Space A patients for acute, non-recurring health needs. That meant civilians could no longer make medical appointments at MTFs until the very day of their visits. If they wanted to be seen, they'd need to check their local clinic's Facebook page at about 10 o'clock every day to see if the MTF had any Space A appointments for the category of care they needed. Nicole Casimir, a DoD civilian who works at Yokota Air Base, says many civilians felt as though the rug had been pulled out from under them. Her family's challenges started in August, when the base's leadership started restricting pediatric care for civilian patients. That left her son without a reliable source for the ADHD medication and EpiPens he needs for his medical conditions. I mean, it adds extra stress to a lot of us. I haven't done much research on how I can continue my health care because I'm spending so much time trying to get the services that I need for my son, my, his ongoing services. He has, um, he's on emergency rescue medication. He's on medication for his neurodivergency. So I can't focus on myself. My husband has high blood pressure. So every day I'm worried about if something should happen, he's not going to be able to get the emergency care that he needs. So this is just everyday stress that's on the back of your mind while you're trying to work, while you're trying to produce for your agency, for the warfighter. Casimir and other DOD employees say the situation has already had palpable effects on military commands and defense agencies' ability to attract and retain employees in Japan. We have people who want to have the opportunity. I mean, to work overseas is just such a great experience. 
not only for being able to see how your agency directly impacts the greater world, um, but also for our children as well. It, it just expands them culturally. But we've had people who either A, will not apply for the positions because they know that there is a healthcare concern out here, or they apply, delve deeper into the healthcare situation, and then they end up retracting their acceptance. And then we have to start all over. Um, we've had other people who just no longer can deal with the stress and the uncertainty and they leave early. So then we have to scramble to backfill their positions. But just leaving Japan isn't a viable option for some DOD employees, although some of them have the ability to ask for a transfer to another geographic location within their same agency, others can't do that. One major example is the roughly 2,400 school teachers and other employees who work for the DoD education activity. DoDia simply doesn't offer the ability to transfer to another country. In a situation like this, for people like myself who came with a chronic condition, I asked all those questions. My ministry said, yeah, we're good. I get it. It's changed. But the choice that I'm faced with is if I cannot get to an installation or somewhere where I can get the services, I have to quit my job. That's a teacher who spoke during a town hall last week at the Army's Camp Zama. From the standpoint of taking care of everybody's kids, this is like the other, right? I now have to watch out for mine. I feel that I've provided good service to this community as a teacher, right? And football coach, do what I job, this, that, the other, that kind of thing. And it gets tough because I get it from a resources standpoint. But teachers are left with little to no options. Our options are to fight it out and maybe find something or quit. Most of the reasons DOD civilians have so few options outside of the MTFs have to do with nuances involving the Japanese healthcare system. Japan has a serious provider shortage of its own, and DOD civilians have seen varying degrees of difficulty getting appointments at private hospitals and clinics. Some of them accept American insurance, and some don't, but in many cases, they require foreigners to submit upfront payment if they'll see them at all. According to Japan Medical Advocacy, a group of DoD civilians who organized last fall to look for fixes to the problem, Japanese facilities often require payment of up to 200% of their standard fees before they're willing to treat foreigners. And unlike in the American system, there's no legal requirement that hospitals or clinics treat patients, even in emergency situations. Cultural differences between the Japanese medical system and the American one also mean that DoD civilians can be denied care at local facilities for reasons they'd never imagined. For instance, one of the most popular childbirth clinics for American women in Okinawa simply will not see patients who've been diagnosed with ADHD. That's according to Kelly Pretorius, a pediatric nurse practitioner who's been trying to help women and families in the area find care. The perspective on mental health is so drastically different than what we do in America, right? The approach to pain management is totally different. Right. So like you can't even get an epidural in Okinawa. They don't do that. I don't know one woman recently who's been able to get an epidural in Okinawa. Forcing women to have an unmedicated delivery when that's not their choice is mind blowing to me. Episiotomies are more common. Depending on the facility, partners are restricted access while the woman is in labor. I have a woman who's going to have a C-section soon, and her husband's not even allowed to be in the hospital. Pretorius is married to a DOD civilian employee, and she saw the problems firsthand when she had her own baby at an off-base facility in 2020. After several days of labor, she had post-delivery complications that weren't fully diagnosed until she saw a doctor in the U.S., who determined that she now needs major reconstructive surgery. 
Despite two master's degrees and a Ph.D., Pretorius has also been unable to find a job at the Navy-operated MTF in Okinawa because the hospital has no billets open. The MTF did let her work on a volunteer basis via the Red Cross, something she welcomed because the unpaid work at least gave her enough clinical hours to maintain her license in Texas. And then I was going in on weekends to do newborn checks for the families because I just love um, seeing babies and providing that guidance um, to new moms. And people have such little support out here that I was happy to offload that patient load to the other practitioners that were working. Um, but once this crisis started occurring, I've stopped volunteering because now all of my energy has been spent. During last week's meetings, defense officials emphasized they were primarily there to listen to DOD employees' concerns and learn about the problems before they develop solutions via a working group. Gil Cisneros, the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, told participants he was surprised to learn that Japanese facilities can turn patients away for any reason. The Japanese medical system is not our system that we're used to. And that is the big picture right there, right? Um, the whole um, idea of uh, individuals being turned away uh, when there's an emergency, it's a foreign concept, right? It's just not something that we are used to. Um, so uh, we're continuing to learn, we're continuing to, to grasp the picture here and what everybody's dealing with. I think, um, you know, I, I definitely have a better understanding of, of how it's affecting everybody a lot clearer than I did two days ago before I got here. And aside from DHA's lack of communication with DOD civilians about the sudden changes in its interpretation of space available, Cisnero says it also appears that DOD components haven't adequately informed job candidates about the military's Space A policy and what it would mean if it were fully enforced. In interviews with Federal News Network and in those town hall testimonials, numerous employees said they'd been told that they would receive all of their health care via MTFs when they first agreed to take positions in Japan. I have had my prescriptions written for me by the base hospitals for the last 13 years for my chronic condition. My prescription, I have one more refill. What am I supposed to do? I'm currently making poor health choices and poor medication choices to try to extend the time so that I can figure out what I'm supposed to do because I'm almost 100% certain there is no way I'm going to be able to get my medications refilled. My question to you is what am I supposed to do? I, I don't know. Japan Medical Advocacy has suggested several specific actions the department could take to resolve the crisis. Some of them are difficult and long-term, like sizing the mission of each MTF to account for the needs of the DoD civilian population. Others could be done more quickly, like letting civilians get prescriptions written by stateside providers but filled at MTF pharmacies. Heck says that's one of the short-term options DHA is exploring. We are working... Uh on a solution to the prescribing issue so that prescriptions can be sent from a U.S.-based provider to the MTF here for, to get filled, uh, with, with exception yeah. for you know, any you know, nar narcotic control two substance type, type drugs. But we are currently working that issue right now. Uh, and as far as telehealth is concerned, we are looking at, at ways that we may be able to offer telehealth from the states to a location that's somewhere on a U.S. installation, right? So you wouldn't be able to do the telehealth appointment from your home if you live off base. But once you're on an installation, we may be able to get around that, that licensing issue, and we're exploring that as well. But employees in Japan say the right time to ask those questions and explore those issues was many months ago, before the restrictions on MTF care were ever implemented. 
Now that it's a full-blown crisis, they say the department needs to act accordingly. Again, Kelly Pretorius. I am genuinely concerned that more people are going to die unless this policy is revoked immediately. Why aren't you rescinding this policy until there's a solution that your working groups have achieved? Now that you understand our situation, would you move your family here? And can you convince civilians to stay? And finally, why is a stay-at-home mom coordinating the efforts of American citizens desperately seeking medical care because government agencies have stripped us of our access? Jared Sober, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.